Welcome to Roll Calling, a podcast about actors we love and the movies we love them in. I'm Caroline Sita, and my New York accent changes in every scene that I'm in. I'm Ned Baker, and uh, I'm, I'm just a tourist, like you. I really liked that line. I wrote that line down, too. It was a good Zach delivery. Yeah, a couple of those in this. We love a good Zach delivery, and the way this podcast works is that Ned and I take turns curating a five-film miniseries, starring an actor we love, giving line deliveries we love. Uh, this is the fifth and final installment of our series on Zach Efron. And Ned, I think this is a title-related first for our podcast. We're going from The Greatest Showman to The Greatest Beer Run Ever. A very weird cosmic twist of Mm -hmm. movie titles. Uh, This is Peter Fairley's brand new war dramedy streaming on Apple TV Plus right now, right at your fingertips. Finally, we have a movie that suggests that maybe the Vietnam War was bad. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> a heroic take someone should say it and it was brave of them to be the first to do it a revolutionary idea and to help us analyze this brand new installment in zach's filmography maybe some other things that are going on in zephron's life as well is a very special guest he's worked in the writer's room for detroiters and portlandia and he's currently a producer and writer on documentary now which launches its fourth season later this month and he is also just one of my favorite people to talk about movies with he's matt paycolt welcome to the show matt guys thank you so much for having me thank you this is great it's great to be here excited matt you know i'm glad to sneak in on like the zach efron Mm -hmm. of it all that's like really great well we've been wanting to get you on the show forever i don't know if zach is where i would have immediately thought to place you but it worked out really well because you got a chance to experience the greatest beer run ever in its in its kind of debut moment at the Toronto International Film Festival, where you were there with docu- Documentary Now, uh, debuting your own episode, your own Agnes Varda-themed episode. So I kind of want to kick off with just like, what was your TIFF experience like, personally, uh, <laughs> in terms of the greatest beer run? Could you feel the like Zach energy just floating in the air? <laughs> I... I really like where does TIFF and this is like a question for like you Mm -hmm. guys but like where does TIFF as a festival like what is its sort of reputation I mean I I loved it and sort of my experience of it was that oh this is like it's the movies are a lot more accessible the movies are a lot more like Mm -hmm. like they're almost like mainstream in a way that these are like yeah well they're not like there are some really fun, like tone poemy kind of movies, but it's not as like experimental as like other film mm-hmm. festivals. But it's like, yeah, it, it sort of it felt like um, midwestern in a way or something like that. Like it felt like a Chicago, like it's Ooh. in Toronto. It was like it just didn't feel pretentious, you know, in a way that I thought was like really cool. Toronto always feels like Chicago to me. Mm-hmm. I can't explain why, but that's always just been an impression I've had. That's nice to hear. I I wouldn't say that I. Could you answer a question about its reputation, Caroline? I mean, I feel a little out of the loop. I'm like, I, I don't, I don't know that I know the different festivals. Yeah, I would say that you're spot on, Matt. That it's like a very accessible mainstream festival that is also sort of a kickoff to awards seasony movies that fit into that category. Mm-hmm. Um, almost like, I guess it's kind of like what Sundance is to the winter, but to the like the fall f- 
awards season. Right. Like, I think it's a very smart place to launch a movie like Greatest Beer Run Ever, which could be a potential award season play, but is very um, safe and comforting. Like it's it's definitely fitting within that uh, Green Book mold, which was Peter Fairley's last big, which also premiered at Oscar, which also movie. premiered at TIFF, and was like. Um, you know, the and this is obviously his follow up, and like Spielberg's Fablemans was also premiering there, mm-hmm. and so I think like this, along with again Knives Out, the new Knives Out movie, Glass Onion was premiering there, and so there's a lot of there's a lot of oh. movies with just a huge amount of heart there, but there are still a fair amount of um, mm-hmm. there's still a fair amount of like pretty uh, like you know just like like issue driven like almost borderline depressing kind of movies. And so it's nice to, <laughs> to it's ni- my, it's nice to have that like mix. And then, so you see a movie like, uh-huh. and I am definitely susceptible to this at like, at Sundance and stuff too. There's this movie a few years ago, um, Late Night with Mindy Kaling that no one really liked. Yeah. Um, no one liked the that, but I saw that at Sundance. I was like, this is the funniest movie. I, I love it. I absolutely love it. I So I get <laughs> caught up. <laughs> And like I was recommending it to everyone, and everyone's like, "This movie is like, like uh, an airplane C. You know, it's like it's bad." Mm-hmm. And um, mm-hmm. <laughs> and so I do sort of fall into that into that trap. So anything I see at a festival, I'm just so caught up in it that I'm like, "Oh yeah, this is awesome," and I feel great mm-hmm. because I just watched this other movie that made me feel down. It's an awesome way to see movies in general. I mean, just just generally like seeing things in a warm, receptive room that's already kind of bought in. I just saw, last week, because of Halloween, I got to watch A Girl Walks Home Alone at night in a movie theater for the first time, and I just was like, it was just this transformative experience. And my, like, one film festival experience, it was like, I was just basically, I mean, I guess I dumped on some things, but but generally, like, I was just, it was very easy to go along for the ride with whatever something was putting down. And I, I agree, kind of like, Especially if it didn't try to be too, I don't know, like either too art housey or too aggressively upsetting, um, or the most frequent combination, both. Uh, <laughs> but if it wasn't, if it, if it, if it, you know, is inviting you along for an interesting or fun, exciting time, that can be, can be very easy to go along with. I've never seen Late Night, but it's on my list. It's I'm cute. curious. I like the, I like Late Night. Cool. Uh, yeah, there's. I feel like there's a reason that um, for a lot of press screenings, they will they will make them combined press and general audience promo screenings, like studios mm. when they can like to do that. Because I do think that there is just like frankly something that happens when you're in a room full of people who are all laughing at this like fun free early screening they got to go to. You know, you're trying to keep your critical perspective, but that is influencing you in a way. I think that that like warm spirit you're describing, Matt, of in the festival environment can like uh, can kind of you know maybe maybe bump you up half a letter grade or really give you a little bit of a, a positive feel about a movie. This is why we go to the picture show. Mm-hmm. Why mm-hmm. we go to, to the be manipulated by <laughs> audiences around us. Yeah, was the audience warm to Greatest Beer Run when you saw it a TIFF? 
I think so. As I'm bumbling around and sort of just <laughs> running into other producers and stuff, they're like, "Oh, you should see this movie. It, it was really funny, and the performances are great. And go go see it." So people were recommending it to me, and it was pretty hard to get tickets to just because it was one of the more mainstream ones. So I ended up going to like one of those like press and industry ones, mm-hmm. which are sort of easier uh, to sneak in, and it felt. It like on the it felt warm, but then reviews have been coming out about it, and they're sometimes mixed or whatever. Mm-hmm. So I'm like, oh, I probably was sitting next to some of these people that are like, hate, <laughs> suck. <laughs> yeah. um, um, but but no, when I would bump into people, they would be like, this movie is rad. Go see it. So that that was sort of my experience with it. I wasn't on the, I I didn't like see the the one where like. Peter Farrelly was there and introduced mm-hmm. all like like the entire cast, like not Bill mm-hmm. Murray and Russell Crowe, but basically every single other actor was there. And there's this video of him just like introducing like all 30 people, like going down the call sheet, basically wow. introducing every and everyone comes on screen and they had just blown themselves out. So obviously everyone's like really that worked on it was there and was really proud of it and had a fun time. But I didn't necessarily bump into them. I wasn't at yeah. that screening. You weren't chasing Zac Efron down the street trying to get your High School Musical jersey autographed. No, there. <laughs> I'm sure there were other people there doing that. But I was, you know, and my relationship to like Zach too mm-hmm. is is a little. I feel like I came to him like Ned a little bit later. It, like we were we were just older when the High School Musical stuff was was going on i think high school musical came out the summer that i was like burning through like the puppet master series Mm -hmm. and just other slasher (laughs) movies and so it's just it would have paired nicely with that but i just (laughs) i just kind of missed it i just sort of missed it a little amuse bouche before the puppet master programming (laughs) well i i want to kind of dig more into zach in general and like where he is now but maybe i maybe can we do a quick little round robin of just like where we're all at with greatest beer run before we dive in deeper later like mm-hmm. I'll, i mean i'll just start i didn't love this movie but i certainly didn't hate it like i think it's very watchable i think it's pretty i mean i don't know if accessible should be like have negative connotations but it definitely is that that crowd pleasing vein feels like a movie that could have been made in the late 80s or early 90s really not covering any new ground that has not been covered in a million movies but for what (laughs) it is like super well done and i think a really good zach performance and a great use of zach sort of his his bag of tricks his his skill set so maybe matt what what was your what's your general your hot take on greatest beer run I'm I'm in the same boat that it's it was um again like watching it I gave it initially the bump and then I reviewed it and watched it with some friends and they're like like and I see I my feeling about it is is basically that um well, I guess two things first just to back up and to talk about the Zach of it all mm-hmm. like have you seen this it is like to me it's like a Peter Farrelly movie it's not more it's like a peter fairley movie more than a zach movie Mm -hmm. and so those movies are just like even just going back to dumb and dumber and something about mary like those movies do have so much heart to them and it's like aiming for 
it like lacks a specificity because it, it just wants everyone to come together. It wants yes. it wants to play a movie that you can play for your entire family at Thanksgiving and everyone can like kind of agree on this. And that's at the expense of maybe like more specific monologues from those soldiers like when you're like in Nam and um you know it sort of it sort of maintains like it 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 doesn't have that edge that like a mash or even like a good morning vietnam has or, like the sort of the great sort of anti-war kind of comedies and but it still has like that heart that mm-hmm. peter fairly is known for yeah um my other i suppose my other feeling well anyways that's i think that's yeah we can go more into later but that was sort of my knee my sort of knee jerk yeah uh, reaction. Ned, what about you? Mine is pretty similar to all of y'all. I mean, I, I, at times through watching it, and honestly, right when I finished, I was feeling pretty pretty low on it. And I'm, you know, watching it with my laptop. Like, I don't even have a, a full-on TV right now, so i watching it with my laptop on my chest. Like, that's about as far as you can get from, like, sitting in the audience at the at yeah. TIFF. Um, <laughs> I, I think that I definitely... It has grown on me a little bit in the, you know... 24 or 36 or however many hours since I watched it in terms of like there were some images in there and I, I really do think you've got a really solid Zach performance right in the middle that I'm like I'm glad that this movie found him and he found this movie and that that exists but I definitely am a little jaded on how as you say like as you two have both alluded to like the movie is like more toothless than the movies made about the same subject 50 years ago mm-hmm. and uh, like I think it may be like like a great movie it's like a great like liberal movie for republicans to to not to not to be overly political about it but i mean it's like it's a great anti-war movie to show people for whom that is still a radical take mm-hmm. and for those of us who are like maybe expecting something a little bit more i don't know like urgent or incisive from our political movies which it is a political movie it's like it's pretty it's pretty tame mm-hmm. um and I and I think that the some of the storytelling further out from Zach is a little bit a little bit sort of bland. But um but I wouldn't say I, I have strong negative feelings towards this movie. Uh and as I say, it's it's warming up a little bit for me and may do so more by the end of the end of the podcast. I just maybe I hoped that the sort of uh subject matter and combination of elements would give us something um with a little bit more uh like zeal to it and uh so that's that's kind of where i'm at as a, as a starting position here it's a movie where the ultimate thesis is just we need a little less drinking and a little more thinking you know <laughs> like basically a sort of like home goods bumper sticker home goods wooden design to put up in your kitchen of mm-hmm. a movie there were a few of those like pretty on the nose like you know, you're about to learn it's a lot harder to get out of a ward than it is to get in. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then like Russell Crowe saying like, that's what war is, Chicky. It's one giant crime scene. Yeah. And it's like, it's kind of like, no, 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 we know. We're we're with you there. Like we're, we sort of are. <laughs> we were we with you before already, the like, movie started, in fact. <laughs> you know, we 
<laughs> we watched a few of the Ken Burns like Vietnam ep- like doc mm-hmm. like episodes. Like we've we're we know Vietnam. Like we're with you. Yeah, we're okay. It really seems like it's a movie that is trying to speak to those like five guys drinking in the Doc's Fiddler Tavern in New York, like still thinking that the Vietnam War is like a great and noble cause. But I'm like, <laughs> those guys are dead <laughs> and uh mm-hmm. and uh this was a long time ago so so yeah uh i i just like who knows what this will go on to feel like in like years and years and when the, like the whole canon of vietnam movies starts to like blend together and when they were made matters a little bit less i had a little bit of a mm-hmm. question of like why was this made now mm-hmm. but um but probably you know sort of charitably it's because like the people involved like thought this would be like a fun and nice a nice story to tell and a fun movie to make and they decided to make it and that's you know i can't really like beef with that also i do think those guys that like the like bobby pappas and rick dugan etc and chicky i do think those guys were at tiff like they were in the They'd audience been on getting the sort to of watch promo it trail for the movie so i'm sure that yeah. they were yeah but the, but yeah it's like in in the space of like in the vietnam war it's funny, like in the Vietnam War movie, like canon, mm-hmm. it seems like there is space for this story. Like it, this is like a good, like new angle on it. And so that's sort of the frustrating thing that I like wanted to talk to you guys to figure out is, is like, why does this one, like it's like so close, but it's also just like, it kind of is, it, it kind of is more forgettable than it should be or it doesn't it doesn't just strike the chord that it mm-hmm. should be hitting mm-hmm. it's definitely leaning more on the like forest gump side of depictions of vietnam war than like you know mm-hmm. the platoon or born on the fourth of july depictions of the jacket. vietnam war i would Apocalypse say now <laughs> yeah 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 yeah, right, right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, well, okay, so I am excited to dig into all of that because I do feel like there's stuff to dig into this movie, but I I also think this movie is maybe even m- more interesting as like an in an into the question of where is Zac Efron at now and like mm-hmm. what is he trying to to do in the future, which I want to I want to talk about like dig into his career, obviously. That's what we do here on this podcast, but I do think we should just at least like flag what has become a weird like elephant in the room around this movie and that was maybe more of a talking point around tiff than the movie itself um which is that zach kind of (laughs) appeared at tiff looking different than we are used to zach looking um facially in his face area (laughs) i we look we ran into this when we were talking about meg ryan and I don't think either any of our aims here is to be like, you know, mean or nitpicky. These are real people. These are their faces. People are allowed to literally do whatever they want with their own faces. And that's totally. great. We support that. Um, it obviously becomes just like a tricky issue when you're a public persona who's known for one type of look and you show up uh, looking differently. So, yeah, there was a, just a bit of like a... A... <laughs> How am I trying to phrase this? A, a jaw situation, a face situation. He just for looks sweet. different. He's Little got a Zach. big, yeah. big jawline now. He's just mm-hmm. more, more sort of, yeah. Uh, Leaning just, towards like a Thanos. <laughs> yeah. More towards Thanos than he so, had been previously. Sort of, sort say. of more of like, it just makes me think of like the small soldiers or like, you know, sort of a, like a, an 80s like war movie action guy. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Mm-hmm. 
Yes. And I think we said this with Meg, too. There's always this question with celebrities where people are like, did you get plastic surgery? Weigh in on this controversy. Da, 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 da. Which I think is kind of silly because I think it's probably safe to assume the vast majority of celebrities have had plastic surgery. The ones we praise for being like, oh, my God, how are they so ageless? How do they look so young? Ages. Well, the answer is probably plastic surgery. So what we're really judging here is, did you have good plastic surgery that we cannot immediately identify? Or did you have plastic surgery that we can identify as such? And Mm -hmm. then putting a value judgment not on the getting the surgery, but on how much you have successfully hidden having the surgery. Yeah, which I think most people would not be aware of that kind of – they just kind of take at face value (laughs) – face value – that some people like (laughs) magically look young forever and then they say – when they notice the plastic surgery, they say that that Mm -hmm. person is one of the few that got it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yes, and Zach himself has talked about, so he did have a really bad, like, jaw-related accident back in 2013, Mm -hmm. so this was, like, pre-Neighbors, pre-Greatest Showman, and had to have his jaw wired shut for, like, multiple months or something. Like, I think it was a pretty severe accident at the time. He said, he said that in order to sort of, like, just even though that, like, healed up, it does kind of just, like, fuck with your jaw muscles. And there were specific exercises that he would do to just sort of, like, keep things balanced in a way that they wouldn't be because of how the injury healed. Um, there was, like, before this latest, like, tiff jaw, jaw gate, there was, like, another, there was, like, a baby jaw gate in April last year where he was in, like, a video with Bill Nye and his jaw appeared, like just like swollen kind of and he said that that was because he had sort of stopped doing some of his like physical therapy exercises so his jaw just like certain muscles would like get bigger than they normally would if he hadn't had that injury and so that was kind of the state he was in i think when he was like filming um greatest beer run or filming firestarter which also came out this year but then tiff was kind of where we saw zach's new look which i think could evolve over time like i remember there was a time when renee zellweger appeared on a red carpet looking quite different than how we were used to seeing her but then like a couple appearances later she was sort of back to her more familiar look so i think sometimes things just need time to settle or Mm -hmm. there can be fine tuning that happens and like a look a celebrity has at one moment is not necessarily the look they'll have forever so I also think it was he, – he, I don't think he did himself any favors by going to Tiff clean shaven. I actually think when he has a beard or a mustache, it, he can do a lot of contouring with his facial hair. And that was not – he was not using that skill at Tiff. So I think that made it feel even more of a jarring debut for Sweet Sweet Zach. Yeah. It was not like it was. I'm sure Peter Fairley is like, oh my god, thank God, this is the controversy of like this movie. <laughs> you know, like after Green Book and sort wow, of like that is everything. A very it's good like point. he's like he's like, oh man, at this guy's effing jaw. Are you kidding me? Yeah, I don't <laughs> need to answer sailing. any like, complicated yeah, like, racial like, questions. Yeah, there was like, there's no. a tough a tough moment in an Entertainment Tonight interview that's with. That's with Zach and Peter Fairley and the interviewers is saying, like, why did you weigh in and, and deny that you had plastic surgery, which like I don't think Zach actually has. And he kind of like doesn't know how to answer the question. And then Peter Fairley just goes, yeah, if he got plastic surgery, you think he'd want to look like that? And I was like, oh my God. that was tough, Peter. I do not think that was the right move on your 
part in the situation and yeah that was honestly that was the worst thing to come out of all of this was just like having to watch zach kind of have to laugh off mid-interview oh god what a thing to what a thing to say i guess from the writer of uh dumb and dumber <laughs> i haven't hit that milestone in my career where sort of like that older like norman desmondy norma desmondy type actor mm-hmm. sort of pulls me aside and is like yeah that effort has like hair plugs and he has like he's been doing like like whatever injections since he was like seven and it's i i haven't but i assume like that is a milestone and you hear i hear mm-hmm. the stories of my like friends and stuff where it's like oh yeah like so and so pulled me aside and like explain that this actor who never has allegedly had any work done is like like addicted to this kind of thing and so it's like that is like a tier that you get to i think when you work in like la like you hear it from waiters and you hear it from other things but that Mm -hmm. moment where you find like a norma desmond that's like oh like you're just gonna like name names and you're gonna Mm -hmm. say who everyone goes to and, and how they botch it and like properly rate it i mean that's sort of like the point of Perez Hilton is it sort of is yeah. in like TMZ and stuff that like fulfills that. But I want to hear it from the horse's mouth mm-hmm. and then like sort of come on the podcast and do like the like, oh, yeah, this is like when Zach was calling Tom Cruise, like Tom Cruise gave him this phone number. And then because it's Tom Cruise, like he just assumed like I don't have any of like that kind you of don't like, have secret behind the scenes detail that i wish yeah the Matt, tea spill. If, if if norma desmond does tell you those things and then you come on here aren't you gonna be like blackballed for like breaking the circle of trust <laughs> or or no you won't be well, because that's... who's listening to the podcast <laughs> <laughs> no i would i would um yeah i don't know i don't i i think i assume everyone just gets stuff like in yeah. those, like they start early they start early and and they just go often yeah and like and also like like another thing that's very unique to la is like the free newspapers and stuff like every neighborhood kind of has a free newspaper and it's like again print doesn't really exist and so it's like well why do these newspapers exist and it's just like plastic surgery and real estate ads and then so it's (laughs) so it's like when you're out here it's like yeah sure why not let's go get some Let's go get a little work done and then have brunch in Larchmont. Yeah, yeah, when I was in LA in June, where I where you very kindly, uh, you and your wonderful partner Naomi, let me crash with you guys for a while. The commercials in LA are so different than the commercials in Chicago. Every commercial was like, "Here's your fat loss program. Here's your plastic surgeon. Here's your teeth whitener." Like I was like, "Oh yeah, this is a very you feel like you're in LA as soon as you land." The impression is based on is based on something. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And maybe if there is like it's our a, culture, yeah, <laughs> your questionable culture. You're not allowed to say that, Caroline. You're not from <laughs> LA. You're not allowed to say it's questionable. Only Matt is allowed to say that. Fair. I think a more. I don't know if we want to put a if we want to put a positive takeaway spin on Zach's surreal September, which I'm sure was very surreal for him. It's that I think we often talk about, like rightly so, we talk about body issues and plastic surgery and stuff as it relates to women in Hollywood and how difficult that is for them, which I think is very true and has been true for a very long time. I actually think increasingly, as the standard has become that every man in Hollywood has to look like a Marvel superhero, Mm. I feel like those Mm. body issues and plastic surgery things that I'm sure always existed for men, I feel like that is ramping up like crazy high. 
um, in a way that I think is very like unhealthy and bad. And I want us to free men from having to feel that way in the way I want us to free women from having yeah. to feel that way. Yeah. And I think Zach, because he kind of launched as this teen heartthrob and then because he was in the sort of Baywatch superhero body mold, like I think he has experienced that quite strongly for like his entire adult life. And that is very hard. And I have nothing but empathy for him and for all other men. And I hope they do not have to <laughs> deal with these unfair standards. Yeah. Yeah. It, I do. It, it like is interesting. Like I was watching, um, not too long ago, like Ace in the Hole with Kirk Douglas. And he was like, you know, bulky and ch- mm-hmm. hunky. And in like he's shirtless in a few scenes and stuff. And it's like, a totally different body shape too it's like i do it is interesting how like the the sort of i I think you know the sort of (laughs) i think of it as like the like the fit vancouver dudes in so many shows film in vancouver Mm -hmm. like this like this like hunky yeah this like hunky dude is very um it's like a very distinct like it feels very like modern body type and Mm -hmm. i sort of do I guess crave like uh, more diversity of even just like on the of what is hunky, mm-hmm. you know. Like I I like I like sort of an old nineteen forties like just sort of bulky. Probably not because they work out that much, but because they're like Carrying whatever they're stuff. eating and yeah. smoking. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, you're right. They're not like yeah. I'm doing a targeted <laughs> workout regime to get my specific <laughs> neck muscles that I'm balancing with eating this many macros of protein at this hour of a day. Like, yeah, what a horrible way to yeah. live your life. Way too much. There's just way too much information about it all now, you know. And so I, I think it's okay to have less and, yes. and yeah. have wider. Variety. I mean, it's. I wonder if it's. I mentioned the timeline of particularly what what kind of blew my mind the other day. You know, speaking of the greatest showman, is I just saw a picture of Hugh Jackman. If you Google Hugh Jackman X Men One, mm-hmm. he's I mean he's in good shape, but he's in a he's in a shape that I feel like I could realistically like get to in a few months. And if you look at him in like <laughs> I don't know what's this other one from? I'm just there's a side by side of Logan or something. Not Logan, where he was kind of like old and decrepit, but maybe like the Wolverine. Mm-hmm. Um, oh yeah, yeah. That's where he's just got like Thor muscles. He's just on a completely different level of like, you know, steroid enhanced. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, this kind of gets us into the like this question of like where is Zach at now, and what does mm-hmm. the future hold for him? So we we so far in this podcast have covered, um, like I would say there's like two initial phases of Zach's career. The first one is his like massive teen idol, romantic lead, uh musical, you know, crooner kid in high school musical and hairspray and 17 again and Charlie St. Cloud, which sadly I still have not found time to watch, so <laughs> will still r- remain a mystery forever. We, we forgive you. Um and then he his next phase uh is this like frat Efron fr- phase, this really broy um sweet bros the neighbors the dirty grandpas the bay watches and like in retrospect greatest showman is just like a weird little kind of one-off return to early zach that's kind of stuck in there at the tail end Mm. of the bro phase um but he has actually talked about how how doing baywatch which came out in 2017 the same year as the greatest showman that he really felt like the amount of training he had to do for that movie was like not good and like quite unhealthy and that he really felt like he had a really bad like recovery from that and he had insomnia and 
that he like i guess you have to take all these like diuretics as you're filming so that there's less water under your skin so that your muscles will like pop more Mm -hmm. and he was he 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 was like it yeah at some point we realized that me being on diuretics for like six months straight actually really or however long they were filming a couple months straight like really fucked him up and then it took like basically six months to sort of return to being like a normal person so that's tough and yeah and in these sort of post post baywatch post greatest showman years he then starts this other side gig that we've referenced a couple times throughout this series but he like becomes a a fitness slash wilderness slash healthy eating slash eco sustainability like host and personality he gets tied into this whole like bear grills side of (laughs) hollywood that i think comes out sometimes he had a youtube channel in 2019 that was like fitness content and then also sort of like off the grid living in the wildlife stuff which i think then he transitions into what we talked about last week the quibi series Mm -hmm. (laughs) killing zach efron which Ironically, at one point he literally almost did die because he got a bacterial infection in Papua oh, New Guinea. I didn't know that. Had to be like helicoptered to Australia to Holy get treatment. Moly. So Zach's been through a lot. That would have been so. That would have been such a bummer if he actually died if on the died, set of killing Zac Efron. Can you imagine? Wow, that would that just would have been like it just would have been like James Dean Heath Ledger, but with this like extremely grim and it being a Quibi show that no one saw, just like. Grim satirical version. I mean, no one should die for Quibi if yeah. we can agree on one thing. No, yeah, I hope nobody did die for Quibi before it itself died <laughs> after its, well, its very brief life. In addition to Quibi, which failed, he had a more successful project on Netflix, which I think is kind of similar vibes. It's called Down to Earth with Zach mm. Efron, uh, which is a sort of a travel the world and learn about different sustainable sort of off the grid style ways people are living which i watched like an episode and a half of this morning and ned you must watch the show like if you loved the sort of hot ones bro vibe like sweet bro vibe that zach was giving off i sure did this is like that but just like sweetly broing out in like the tectonic plates in Iceland and making Lord of the Rings jokes, like driving down the street, heading to a, you know, an eco-friendly power plant, like pure, delightful, sweet, sweet himbo Zach roaming the earth, teaching us about Costa Rica. Like truly, I thought this show was so delightful. It's interesting that, you know, it's not a given that an actor is going to have this much of a, like be a television personality as themselves. Right. Like we don't have, we don't have TV shows hosted by Meg Ryan. True, I think it's becoming increasingly common now, though. Mm-hmm. Well, I guess like ascent to stardom is like more tied into things like social media and mm-hmm. followers and those things. But, but I just mean like I think Zach is he really is such a charming interview personality is the main way I've experienced it. I can totally see being like, yeah, I want to spend eight hours watching him just like goof off and travel the world. He's a really good, he brings the right balance of earnestness of like, oh my gosh, I love that I can learn about sustainable farming. And then also like, whoa, this is a crazy, I can't relate to this way of living kind of Mm -hmm. vibes. Like he really is straddling those worlds well. There's a season two coming out, I think just like this fall, 
that I believe they filmed entirely in Australia. Because, oh, that's the other thing. Zach, like, has, is now living in Australia. He, like, moved there during the pandemic. And that's kind of his home base. Wow. And then the last of this wilderness tangent that I have for you, because I truly have never found a more delightful fact. So I have been getting served ads where Zach Efron is the spokesperson for Kodiak Cakes, which are sort of a pancake and waffle. What's that? It's a healthy pancake and waffle <laughs> okay. company. I knew of already because personally I buy their protein waffles, which are basically oh. egos that they tell you are healthy. <laughs> so <laughs> I was already a Kodiak, Kodiak cake, Kodiak waffle uh, purchaser. And then all of a sudden I'm getting Zach ads for them. And I was like, oh, fun. He's the spokesperson. Kodiak Zach. I looked it up, my friend. He is not just the spokesperson. He is the chief brand officer and board member for Kodiak Cakes, and let me read you the best sentence I've ever found in my entire life from a Forbes article. Efron has so far attended at least two Kodiak Cakes board meetings, and he describes the team as, quote, a solid squad with the best vibes ever, quote. <laughs> <laughs> No, you have the best vibes ever, Zach. <laughs> the idea, he so far attended two board meetings, like, <laughs> Just imagine a Zoom call with the Kodiak Cake CEO where Zach is just hanging out there being like, I love your vibes, bro. I can't wait to promote your protein pancakes some more. This reminds me of when I was the student representative to the board of trustees of my high school. A truly, I mean, maybe I did, maybe I provided some value. Did I add some value? <laughs> uh, but I, I think it was just like, let the kids, like bring a student to the boardroom day. But I definitely was like, oh, yeah, the vibe here is great. I don't really understand what's going on. but <laughs> That is, yeah, I have to imagine that Zach sits quietly through a meeting, shakes the CEO's hand at the end. It's just like impeccable vibes, bro. Like, see I you think, next meeting. I think they probably ask him, like, you want to say anything, Zach? And he just says, like, I just I'm such a super huge fan of what y'all are doing out here. Yeah. I mean, he did, in another interview, he said that on his cheat day, sometimes he'll eat an entire box of Kodiak cake uh, waffles. <laughs> But they still have protein, so you know it's still healthy. It's still a healthy cheat day. I think Kodiak, uh, Kodiak is like the broiest kind of bear. Yeah. <laughs> <Sure>. Like it <laughs> is like <laughs> Brodiac. <laughs> oh, here I scrolled down Brodiac far enough. I found bear. a picture of Zach with a bear. Yes. So the commercials are him like cooking pancakes outdoors, and then he's like talking to a bear while he does it. the The YouTube a algorithm was just like Caroline needs to see these ads; she'll love them, and it was mm -hmm. correct. So that's the that's the like weird. I don't know how that fits into Zach's future, but he's he's cruising along with his wilderness side. It's like eco Zach, yes. and I think like that's like one vibe of him. And I think we were talking a little bit about the mustache. To me, is a bigger development than any of like the jaw stuff <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, because that is sort of like the phase of Zach that I'm most excited for, which is like Dad Zach or Dad, Dad Movie Zach, where he can be like he can be like what is his John McClane role and what is his like detective Zach role like mm -hmm. i'm i'm curious for these more like adult things that are geared toward you know just conventional dad movies i suppose you i would think of them as my heart skipped a beat when you asked what is his John McClane role <laughs> i'm like ooh i just can't wait right to like see. right no and i think that's that's sort of also what i do like about the greatest beer run ever a lot is that his it is we are watching his transition from like frat efron to like 
an adult and sort of with a sophistic, I mean, sophisticated, <laughs> a little more thinking, a little less drinking, <laughs> but a sophisticated, like more nuanced, like more nuanced, like position as an, you know, as an adult and sort of, you know, that kind of role, I think, is is smart for him to be doing the segueing. Like yes. we as the audience are seeing him transition from the one phase to another. Segway is totally right. Because mm-hmm. this is this is you're absolutely right that this is like he is actually we're seeing a guy who at the start of the movie is still frat Efron, but everybody's like, It's old dude. You gotta grow up, you gotta stop being frat Efron. And by the end he's like, I'm ready to mm-hmm. I'm ready to you're right, I can't say anything that's deeper than less a little more thinking, a little less drinking. But but it is like in terms of genre, the movie as it goes along is sort of like it does an intentional thing. See, I'm talking myself into liking it more. Where it transitions from being a frat <laughs> comedy into a war drama, mm-hmm. and then ends up kind of being a, a blend of the two. But, but yeah, that is a very clever pivot. You know, maybe he's gonna do. I mean, we've talked before about. I think during the Zach thing about the brilliance with which Tom Cruise chooses his movies to kind of like, mm-hmm. like I don't know, just navigate his career where he wants it and to like interplay with his public image and. I would be happy to see because I have I have more more positive will towards Zach. Uh, I would be happy to see him be able to pull off those kinds of moves as he goes forward and mm-hmm. like stick the landing into a you know late thirties adult film career. I would like to see that chapter next. I, I'm I'm interested. And I think that's the route he wants to go down for sure. There was a big men's health profile that came out sort of promoting a uh, beer run, and he specifically talked about like. He is seeking depth in the roles that he's playing. He's like looking to Leonardo DiCaprio. He's looking to Robert Pattinson as the people who sort of transitioned out of this crazy young adult stardom into, you know, more serious kind of stuff. Uh Um, And we kind of see that. And so he really has not done that many movies since Greatest Showman. He did the Beach Bum small supporting role, which we mentioned as like, a spiritual capper uh, to frat Efron into like art house depth uh, Efron. He he like did a voice in the Scooby some Scooby Doo movie. Um, mm, yeah, this year he did that a movie called Gold where he's like a grizzled man protecting a, a hunk of gold in the desert. And he did Firestarter, which is exactly what you're saying about the like dad dad Efron. He's playing a dad in a, a horror movie, and then. The sort of outlier here is in 2019, he did, he played Ted Bundy, a movie that came out on Netflix called Extremely Wicked, Shockingly Evil, and Vile. And I feel like that was maybe Zach's attempt to pivot towards towards depth in like a different way, where he's sort of subverting his, his persona in a way. Mm-hmm. And I feel like that didn't quite take off. And then Beer Run is almost like, okay, I still want to add the depth, but instead of playing against type, I'm going to kind of like embrace my type, but just use it in a slightly heftier direction. And I wonder if that will be sort of the path that he tries to follow from here. Yeah, with like Extremely Wicked, the Ted Bundy one, it makes you realize like what a rare movie American Psycho is mm. and just how it can can handle like, okay, we're going to have someone play a serial killer, but it's also funny and it's also like there's an intensity and a strange kind of, it's not necessarily a charm to Christian Bale's performance in that, but it, I mean, it is, but it's, yeah. there's a, just so much charisma mm-hmm. to him. And I, I'm not sure that you can just do it with like, um, 
it's hard to do it with an actual serial killer. Yeah, I think it's you're just, right. It's just there's like this this tension that I think gets in the way and like clouds over it. Where it's like no no no, just like make up a rock star serial killer in this. And you talked a little bit about this in Greatest Showman too. Yeah, it's like I would feel more comfortable with this movie entirely. Like you you guys were saying you, how which I totally agree with. You'd feel so much more comfortable with that movie if it was not like pt barnum mm, yeah <laughs> it was just like we it was just a made-up circus guy yeah um, <laughs> instead of this problematic figure <laughs> yeah but i'm sure it was the same thing like they who's gonna bankroll it's just i think it's harder to sell somebody on mm-hmm. producing like zach efron plays jim tancy the fictional mm-hmm. serial killer mm-hmm. it's like no yeah. it's just kind of yeah people will be like the bundy name that'll play it's a strange movie. I rewatched it this morning because part of me was like, do we pick the wrong thing for our final one? Like, do we mess up by not being like, former high school musical bro plays serial killer? Mm-hmm. But I think we made the right choice here, Ned. Like, ex- Extremely Wicked is sort of trying to do something interesting with, it's like anchored more from the perspective of Ted Bundy's like first, like her, his major girlfriend mm-hmm. who didn't know he was a serial killer, obviously for like their relationship. And it's sort so it's sort of, it like is you don't ever see any of the crimes. It's sort of like emphasizing mm-hmm. the charisma that people experienced of Ted Bundy in real time. And then it's almost like the the, the sense that he did the reveal that he did it did it is like played like a reveal, which obviously is like a weird meta thing. Because why would you watch a Ted Bundy movie if you didn't already know who Ted Bundy was? Nine point nine percent of people are gonna know. Right. <laughs> yeah. So I think it's a good Zach performance, but I don't know if it's a like i don't know the most interesting movie in his career whereas greatest beer run i was like we have never had a more thematically tight five episode arc in our podcast than Mm -hmm. i mean literally every single movie we've covered has been zach playing a privileged a nice but privileged man who does things very conventional like lower c conservative thinks everything's fine, all of a sudden being like, wait a minute, life isn't great for everyone? How will I grapple with this? And that we saw him do it in high school with High School Musical and Hairspray. We saw him do it in college with Neighbors. We saw him do it in the in the 19th century with The Greatest yes. Showman. And now we're seeing him do it in the 20th century with Greatest Beer Run. But they are like the same fundamental character types in literally all five of these movies. I, I had that same thought that like, I've been really impressed with his career, but it is very interesting that he is not, and maybe this is just know your strengths and play them. Um, but he is not doing, you know, transformative character actor work. He's not trying to like, ooh, Zach is unrecognizable in this next film as so-and-so. It's it's like they all really feel like they are pulling on facets of the same character kind of over and over again. And not saying he can only give one type of performance, but you're right. They are thematically consistent. And I do think, interestingly, like they play upon his real public persona and mm-hmm. what he's interested in exploring, which is just like complicating your understanding of your own privilege. It's just like that story, like over and over again. I can't believe that this movie also has one where an older generation actor is like, You think you know how things are, kiddo? Yeah. Like, we yeah. just have seen that scene so many times Zach now. Zach being somehow put in his place. By like, uh, by a you know a, a, a former 
mm-hmm. former like heartthrob star. Yeah. yeah. There is something about I think you're so right that the the way his movies are sold now, it's sort of like, would you believe Zach Efron's playing Ted Bundy? Would you believe Zach Efron in a war comedy? Right, right. <laughs> it's like yeah, that's yeah, the selling right. point more than, oh, come see Daniel Day Lewis transform into this new person. Come see Christian Bale transform into this new person. It's like that Zach name from the high school musical Teen Idol Days remains so strong as just like mm-hmm. a persona, probably much stronger than he is as like a box office draw or anything. But there is a persona attached to him that all movies must either like embrace or subvert in some way. And I feel like Greatest Beer Run kind of almost like synthesizes it all because there's a little bit, there's the sweet Troy Bolton side to Chickie Donahue, but there's also the kind of fratty side to him. Mm-hmm. He's a bit and, of an asshole. Mm-hmm. And then it all comes comes to, you know, a little less drinking, a little more thinking. Like he reaches yeah. his- His, his eyes are open to the horrors of the world. <laughs> you know, he watches jets like napalm the tree line and sees a guy get thrown out of a helicopter and he's like, damn, the world is not so simple as I thought. And then mm-hmm. he decides to grow up. You yeah. Know? So he's just kind of coming of age like over and over and over again. Yes. That's- very accurate we also haven't we're like almost an hour into this podcast we have not given any indication of what the actual plot of this movie is do you have like a three sentence (laughs) synopsis you can give us ned for people that are that are tuning in but did not uh Mm -hmm. spend the time to watch in an adaptation of a true story uh including at the end a very striking like side-by-side comparison of an in-movie photograph and then the actual photograph in an adaptation of a true story a merchant mariner (laughs) Uh, living in Inwood, New York, who's kind of like a burnout, who just drinks all the time, decides in a gesture of support from the people at home to sneak into Vietnam without a plan uh, during the height of the Vietnam War, like through the Tet Offensive. And he does succeed in running PBRs in this one big duffel bag to a number of his friends. So many of them. But with with an endless sort of like bag of holding filled with <laughs> infinite PBRs, he runs these PBRs to all of his friends. But along the way, he sort of learns that war is more complicated than he anticipated and the Vietnam War is bad and he needs to do a little less drink and a little more thinking. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's the greatest beer run ever. Yeah, a series of misadventures that start on the comedic side and then there's kind of a pivot point where things are increasingly it goes from like war comedy to war drama Mm -hmm. with some like i actually thought darker moments than i was expecting i don't know if you guys felt this way like i do think to some extent the switch from comedy to drama is kind of effective there's a scene where there's a cia agent like torturing a vietnamese civilian in a helicopter by like threatening to drop him out of it and then at one point actually does drop him out of it. And there's just like this really long mm-hmm. shot of like just a body falling through the air that I found quite actually like haunting and affecting and was not expecting from this movie. I think that uh, I love I love like that. I love that kind of switch. And mm-hmm. I wish that it went a little bit farther. And there, there's like another moment in there where he basically brings the right before this scene, he brings the beer to his friend who's like out on an ambush and they have to call his friend in, like Rick Dugan. And so they called Dugan in from like the, his ambush position. And he has to like leave as he's like taking, you know, fire 
from you know snipers and stuff and he comes back and chicky emerges and he's like hey man i brought you beer and he's like dude you shouldn't be here this is crazy like i almost just got killed and that is also like it's an uncomfortable it's it's an uncomfortable moment and i think like that is a it's like effective for okay this arc to the little let little more thinking little less drinking like that's like these are the effective moments and i think that i personally was like comfortable living in that uncomfortability but then it would do these things that like undermined it like so when that guy is uh, when the cia operative basically drops the dude he's torturing out of the helicopter it plays the song cherish by the association as he's falling as sort of like an ironic counterpoint to it and it to me it undermines it, it like it's like a it's just not how the music in the movie is used. And it was, it made me like uncomfortable in a way that I think was working against the movie. It was like, this isn't the, I, I'm okay leaving it. Like, like in the scenes where in MASH, where they're like doing operations and stuff, I don't need like a rock song to play underneath that. Like, it's important that the people are dying and they're muttering and sounding like surgeons and it's like scary. And I think that this would have, I think, and that's the, I think the Peter Farrelly of it too is he wants to make a movie that everyone can enjoy. And it's like, no, no, it's okay to be tonally mm -hmm. a little like, just go like, this is dark and I want to be scared here, you know? Yeah. And so I don't need like a, a rock song underneath it to sort of make it more entertaining. That's so funny you mentioned that because I wrote the exact same note about the ambush scene but where I said it's a little ambivalent because the guy's like, okay, you want a real taste of Vietnam? And they run across no man's land, but there's like a fun like surf rock tune over it. Yeah, it's like psychotic reaction. Yeah, well, I'm impressed you're picking up all the... Like, just that the movie's like, you know, war isn't all fun and games, but we're going to have a little fun with it. You it's know, like here. a softening of the message. Yeah, I'm like, you just said, wait, what uh, What am I supposed to make of this, this mm -hmm. bit? And you're right. I think it's like, he didn't want to make a gritty war drama, but he wanted to show the war was serious. It's just a little, it's a little ambivalent. It's trying to, you know, eat your cake and have it. It's just kind of like, who is this message for? I mean, we kind of were saying this before, oh, it's for the five people that like still whatever but think the vietnam war was good but is that even i think at this point it would be more of a hot take to argue the vietnam war like was a good thing like no one no one there's no mainstream presentation of that idea so i don't quite know what this movie is rebutting you know like russell crowe has like a pro press speech yeah that i thought okay so is this movie supposed to like win over people who in the trump era were you were taught that like the press is the public enemy yeah. number one like like frankly is the idea that it will reach big c conservatives and make them sort of question the american hegemony a little bit more by showing that people were sort of like blinded you know like i mean i'll, I'll say this a movie that i respect more like 12 years a slave is a movie that obviously nobody thinks slavery is a good thing but I still felt like that movie affected me by making me see all the ways in which people can sort of delude themselves into saying, like, I'm powerless to change the system or I hate this, but I'm a I'm an unwilling participant. And like like the Benedict Cumberbatch character mm -hmm. in 12 Years a Slave, who's like, I wish I could do something for you. I wish I could do something for you. And, you know, so I was able to take those lessons and uh, 
and you know apply them to my thinking on things like you know prisons or like you know, sort of you know today's more urgent topics so maybe this is trying to do that i just think it's this is something of a lesser film than than 12 years a slave was for instance i think you're right that Peter Farrell, I mean, you know, we see this with Green Book, which I think was a, I think Green Book is a worse movie than this. Who saw Green? I, I, have you, you saw it, Matt, have you seen it? Yeah, I've, I saw I, it. I haven't I seen saw it. it. What if Matt's just like, it's my favorite movie, I've got a poster of it. I enjoyed it, but I, I came, to, I came to it, I came to it late, like sort of to, in anticipation of, of like just to see sort of his later arc, mm-hmm. um, later era arc. So I didn't watch it during the, all the hubbub of like, like a lot of vitriol came out about Green Book, like as it was like this movie is going to win Best Picture. Are you, you're shitting me? This movie is winning it. Yeah. Um. And so I sort of watched it like after the dust had settled. I'm like, all right, how you know, what are you doing, Green Book? Show me what you've got. But sorry, that's what. What's your take on it? Well, I was. Just, I think that. <laughs> I think it's I think Green Book and Beer Run are similar in that they're very like accessible, watchable, clearly well-intentioned movies that are like relatively well-made and you know whatever they're like not technically a mess. I think the Green Book depiction of like how we solve and fight racism is like more toxic than the Beer Run sort of vaguely anti-war message. Like I think Beer Run has a more mm-hmm palatable message and therefore i find it to be like a more palatable movie mm-hmm. as a whole but they run into i think they are butting into the like same fundamental thing which is i don't know peter it just seems like peter fairly is very earnestly being like well if i make a movie that says racism is bad then we'll stop racism and like mm-hmm. if i make a movie that says like there's something about beer run that feels like peter fairly saying like well if we just shared a beer with the the MAGA folks out there, we could get them to stop believing in fake news. Like, all we need to do is is reach out the hand of friendship and we can change minds, which just feels like such a naive perspective in mm-hmm. in 2022. And then and then having that under the guise of this like kind of generic anti-war like story. It's just on the political side of things, I guess, less than the like quality of filmmaking, filmmaking. sides yeah. i just feel like on the socio-political messaging it just feels so empty to me yeah here here's what i'll here's what i'll say on in defense of sort of peter Farrelly's position is that like um if you look at him versus an adam mckay you know another mm-hmm. comedy to sort of like like oscar bait kind of drama arc totally don't look up most recently even Todd Phillips, who's like sort of just kind of embracing like a darker, grittier, mm-hmm, the Joker. like he's just I'm I'm not making hangover comedies anymore. I'm doing yeah. like toxic men sort of doing anti-hero films mm-hmm. um, kind of thing. Um, I suppose it makes sense that he's like, no, I just want to do a feel good. Like, I don't want to be sort of the bleak, like world gets destroyed. Don't look up. And I don't want to do sort of something as dark mm. as Joker. I want to be sort of, I want to be the guy that makes people feel good. And it, there is a space for that, I think, culturally. I also think that like, it's okay if it's a little bit smarter. Um, you know, I, I think he's in the interest of sort of making everyone at like, be able to go kumbaya at Thanksgiving. He's sort of sacrificing really great, like monologues um, that these soldiers could have mm-hmm. as they're sharing beer and transported, you know, back home for that like one sit. 
Mm-hmm. And I think one thing that helps Green Book that's like hurting this one is that like there kind of is a clear um, villain in Green Book in the sense that it's like there are racists here that are like actively hurting Doc. Like, and in this one, it's kind of like there's no like the the machine of war everyone's so well-intentioned that there's not really a depiction of who is until you get the CIA agent, which um, there's not really a, but even he is sort of just doing his job. Mm -hmm. Like there's not necessarily a depiction of, of like something that he's like railing. Like everyone's a good guy basically in this movie. No one is really indicted by this. That's a very good point that if you become we're an anti-war in the abstract movie. Everyone can agree with mm-hmm. that. If you become, we're an anti-U.S. government in the 1960s movie, anti-military movie. Being an anti-war movie mm-hmm. is being different than an anti-military movie. And this mm-hmm. movie wants to be a pro-military anti-war movie, which, mm-hmm. as exactly as you're saying, leaves it as, well, the abstract idea of war is not good, except actually World War II is great. And we're going to continually say in this movie that there are good wars and bad wars, which in itself feels like a hedge. Yeah. I mean, I guess there is like, they make some gestures at like LBJ and whatever official is speaking on the TV. There's like, there's like the mm-hmm. lightest hint that like the American government is misleading, but it is not really taking, you're right, that's not a focus. No one is really interested in that beyond the extent of like turn off the tv like listen to that asshole you know Mm -hmm. so yeah and again i like i think like i fundamentally do agree that like he has a right to make this movie like i don't i don't think it's like a bad thing that this movie exists i just think that by you know comparison to other things you know even like even mash which mash with its like you know, now sort of like very odious sexism viewed from today's lens. I still would be like, ah, oh, but there's some interesting like political value in that film and in, in in it existing. Um, but I do also think that I do have some beef, and you were sort of transitioning us here, Matt. That like what the script like gets into, like there is there's there's a there's not just a cost of political utility. There's like a cost of interest here. Like my sort of feeling is that like all of the guys he goes and meets in Vietnam are essentially identical to each other. I don't know. Mm-hmm. I'm like, you, you, you I'm mm-hmm. impressed that you got the memory. I would have been like, yeah, you know, there's Tommy Dugan, Tommy Pappas, Tommy McLoon, uh, <laughs> Tommy Collins and his friend, Tommy Reynolds, who he never sees. Um, who Tommy, Tommy Reynolds actually like in his flashback about, um, indecision so this is this is a guy who's mia who he never who i think he finds out at the end has has been killed Mm -hmm. played by will hockman i want to say uh and their flashback where he's a little like indecisive about going to war that to Mm -hmm. me is probably the most interesting zach and a buddy scene um Everybody else kind of is some shade of like, Chicky, what are you doing here? You're going to get yourself killed. And then he's like, I brought you this beer. And they're like, all right, let's have a beer. And then by the end, they're like, you know, we're glad to see you, Chicky. And then he goes on and he kind of, I think, has that scene again. I mean, maybe maybe there are shades to them that I'm not as much appreciating. But I feel like there's a missed opportunity, particularly because the four guys that he meets up are all real guys who are all still alive, just like Chicky. As you see, you see the the five of them in a contemporary photo at the end of the film. Um, 
I think there's a missed opportunity to kind of make any of them interesting or really specific, which frankly might actually be a symptom of there being real guys, ironically, because like maybe the mm. film is like, well, we wanted to make one of them sort of like a like a like a grim uh, nihilist, but like you know that's not the real guy, and the, you know the the book doesn't support that. So, or even if it was the real guy, we don't want these guys to feel poorly mm-hmm. reflected in a movie, so we'll give them all yeah. nice. Portrayals. I just think like maybe if it's inspired by a book, and if in the book the like Chicky Donahue as a writer has basically been like they were good guys, they were angry to see me, but then we shared a beer, then like. You know, that's what the movie's got to do, I guess. Well, that's what Peter Fairley... I saw some interview where Peter Fairley was like, I don't care if the entire world loves this movie. If Chicky doesn't love this movie, then I mm. failed. Which is, like, fine mm-hmm. in terms of, like, a friendship that you might have with this person. But I don't know if good art necessarily comes from appeasing the subject matter you're making the movie about. Which is right. fine. Not every movie has to be, like, great high art. But it is a maybe a limitation of this movie no hawkeye the guy that wrote the book mash the doctor was like staunchly pro-vietnam you know huh and then uh, like Mm -hmm. one of the great like anti-vietnam war movies is like an adaptation of his book fascinating um but yeah in the book i think i mean well just two points like the first is that i guess like i sort of was thinking like the villain is there's not like a clear villain but then it does sort of pin it on zach like zach harbors all this guilt for talking his buddy mm-hmm. um which tommy. one tommy tommy yeah he he's the one that talked tommy into going which mm-hmm. you know you can read both ways uh maybe he didn't maybe he did maybe he didn't but he sort of harbors that guilt mm-hmm. and so he's the villain which is i guess interesting but then the other thing is like the that the book actually does pretty well um is that Vietnam makes no sense. Like it's pure like chaos over there in bureaucracy, and it's a, this whole catch twenty two world. And so when he's on the beer run, weirdly he's able to hit all of his friends because a beer run in a world that makes no sense makes sense. Mm-hmm. And so he is able to pretend to be, and he does like the book actually. Like I was like watching the movie, and I'm like, no way does he just randomly run into like he gets off his ship and there's military police. And they're yeah. the same. They're the same guys that can take him to like Tommy Collins. And no, sure enough, that's like how it that's happened. True. And then yeah. from there, he... did you read the book, Matt? Yeah, I read the I read the book, and it's really short. It's really Dude. short. Matt, what are you doing? All this? Look at you doing our research for us. <laughs> Thank you. You know, he does just kind of hitchhike his way up there, and he does pretend to be a CIA agent. You know, it, like he uses the CIA effect to his advantage and i think mm-hmm. peter fairley is good at you know both um green book and this like he likes characters that are like bullshitters mm-hmm. and so i do mm-hmm. think those kinds of moments where he's he's bullshitting and then like dealing with the ramifications of bullshitting are like those are good sort of character moments especially mm-hmm. for zach i did also um, think the movie I took a, think- a notch up in the more interesting when you got that like impersonating an officer angle and just like, and, and mm-hmm. particularly with it being this absurdism of like, he backed into it by people sort of like assuming incorrectly that he was a CIA, uh, CIA agent, which you're right, sort of like, is an interesting statement about the like, the pure chaos of Vietnam. Although I don't know that I fully had that thought when I was watching it. No, it, it sort of shies away from it a little. Yeah. yeah. It's a good runner that he just 
keeps popping up in improbable places in civilian clothes and higher ups think, well, the only reason, and he's just like, I'm just a tourist. And the higher ups are like, well, the only explanation is that you are a high level CIA agent and we must Mm -hmm. let you go about your business. There is a, there is an awareness that I think Chicky is like dumb and like just kind of out of his mind for doing Mm -hmm. this. And I appreciated that scene. It's like after the, after things have ramped up where they've kind of had to spend a night sort of facing sniper fire and his friend is heading off and somebody else is like, don't worry. Like, I know these kind of guys, they're too dumb to die. <laughs> and you, it's like this shot of, of Chiggy, just like all of his beers are rolling away from him. And he's like trying to get a pebble out of his shoe and just looks like the biggest schmuck. And sort of the that idea of him just like, I don't know, having this weird dumb luck through all of this was kind of interesting and maybe an interesting commentary on just, you know, the messiness of war or something. It was when it, I think some of the more earnest, the more earnest side of him being like, there's no way war is ever bad, coming to realize war is sometimes bad. I mean, I don't know. Maybe people that are that naive really do exist, but it just, that feels like such a simplistic arc to me. And, and we're so invested in it. Like, we, we're we really supposed to, like, buy in to his belief system at the beginning to sort of see it challenged. But I don't know. It just feels like such an unrelatable initial belief system. In the book, he talks about, he talks a lot about, like, in the soldiers also would, like, get off planes and there would be protests at airports and people would be shouted as baby killers and stuff i mean this is mm-hmm. from chicky's point of view that the book is yeah. like, being written obviously and um like the protesters in this don't seem that like the protesters don't seem like that bad or like they're being that mean to the being that mean to the the soldiers like again the protesters are good and his arc in the book is like it's re- it's a little bit more subtle that it's like it's like, I don't know. He's like, truly, he doesn't necessarily knows know how he feels about Vietnam. But he's like, he's like, they're being, these guys don't have support at home. And then when, mm-hmm. at the end, sort of his revelation is, it's like more nuanced. It's like, I really hate these politicians that got us into this mess. And like, I agree with the protesters. And I, I, I hate how they behaved. But like, I still hate the war. And it's kind of like, yeah, OK. Maybe if it felt more personal to him and maybe I don't know, maybe the movie thinks it's just being personal to him. It's just I don't know, trying to make a movie that's just like the Vietnam War was bad. It's like, yeah, again, I've seen that movie so many times. Yeah. <laughs> Can I also say this movie presents Chicky Donahue as like. I'm a bumbling idiot and I technically was in the army, but like I barely did anything and I was in Massachusetts. According to his Wikipedia page, he actually served in the Philippines and Japan with the United States Marines from 1958 to 1964, Mm. which does kind of imply to me, I mean, you would know better, Matt, because you read the book, but it implies to me that he probably in real life had a level of competency that this movie is really dialing back for comedic effect. He could use like jargon enough was basically basically how he describes it. Like he uh, sort of understood like different people's ranks and stuff Mm -hmm. enough that he could kind of bullshit his way enough to like take advantage of he called it the CIA effect Mm -hmm. to take advantage of that. I think they showed that a little. It seems like from his Merchant Marine days, he'd had those that sort of work. I mean, I'm wondering like 
I don't know the military history well enough to know did he if he was in active combat in the Philippines or if it was the same thing where he was stationed on a base and basically I wonder if they were just like let's make yeah. it let's make it clearer by having it be he was stationed on a base in Massachusetts. Sure, sure, sure. You know, he might not have seen combat, but I just think the idea he's like, I don't even know which way's up on a gun. Like he's just so incompetent that it I don't know, it starts to I was like, okay, I feel like this man had more even if his mission was kind of crazy and he was faking his way through it, I feel like he probably had more of an ability to manipulate the situation than this movie is presenting him as. But uh, if you want to go with that, that like, sort of like, bumbling, comical, too stupid to die kind of guy, Zach's your guy. I think he really, I think he really was like, he's the guy for this movie. Absolutely. Yeah, I think that's very true. I think that this is a very smart use of, like we said, kind of like all those different sides mm-hmm. of him. And I really think of that scene. Again, it's like the the scene where things flip, where he goes to meet the second friend who's who's in active combat as opposed to the first friend has just been is in a more calm situation. Yeah. So the in that sense, bringing the beers feels wild, but not fully out mm-hmm. of line. But once you've kind of entered an active combat zone, it seems crazy. And so the guy comes in as it had to literally run through sniper fire. And Zac Efron jumps out and is just like Zac Efron has been hiding under a tarp in a really good sight gag yeah. that I did enjoy. And he goes, I brought you some beers. It really made me think of um, Mark Wahlberg and the fighter, uh-huh. who was always just like, mm-hmm. I just want to be a fighter. I want to I want to be nice to my brother. I want to be nice to my girlfriend. I want to love my mom. Like, <laughs> he has that that, What's wrong with uh, that? energy that Zach sometimes yeah. brings. Yeah, it's like, it just brought you yeah. some beers in a war zone. I don't get what the problem is. He's quite good at playing. One thing that the book talks about as well is that, like, the... PBR that it in that era was more of a regional beer. It would have only been in New York and they sort of dismiss mm. it. But I do think that that is like, not that the guys need a Ratatouille moment, but I felt like the individual episodes of him sort of meeting mm-hmm. the military policeman dude and then Dugan in, who's like on the, on the in the ambush position and then Kevin McClune. Like, I do think each of them could have been a little more I would I was craving something like even more distinctive and one of them getting like a little bit more teary eyed or something or a little bit more like having that they don't need to go full ratatouille with sort of that moment, but a little bit more like Chicky, I hate that you're here, but then getting to like a like a Matt Damon esque monologue at the end mm-hmm. of Saving Private Ryan that is sort of like just from a place of like sadness and terror i could have stomached that and i could have i think that it would have helped me feel the that the actors again those actors that are were just like less of the same guy yeah. it felt like the arc for all four of them was just like i can't stay mad at you because you're charming mm-hmm. well what that what you guys both saying that just made me realize i feel like i've been trying to dance around this or like i haven't understood what i've been trying to say the problem with this movie is that the only person in the movie who has an emotional arc is Chicky, and everyone else exists to serve his emotional arc totally. about him realizing the war is bad. But to some extent, like a civilian who is only involved in war because he chose to be is the least interesting person to have. Like this is the Green Book problem, right? That we have a whole movie about how a white man had a supporting black friend who taught him racism was wrong. But our focus is on like, and that's how the white man processed that. This is like, here's a civilian learning why war is bad but the actual people who are living in the war we're not really treating them as characters they are all 
part of his arc, which just in some way feels like the least interesting framing. No, this move, like one of these scenes could have been like a deleted scene in Platoon or something like that, right? Where just Mm -hmm. like uh, some random dude prances through the jungle and like delivers PBR. And it's just a weird little episode in a in a series of sort of war episodes. And I think like a, a, a thing that I want to express is I think this is a this is a good story. Like this is an interesting idea for a story. I mean like literally just the image of him in his little check shirt with his gigantic duffel bag full of PBRs like like running around Vietnam is like that's a that is a that's an adequately surreal image. I mean I think we've sort of talked about like a lot of great war movies, like they capture, and what, what Apocalypse Now does is you're just like, my God, this is this is surreal as hell. Like like reality has been turned on its head, and this feels like a good little version of that that is ripe for this kind of like dramedy. It's just that I think in execution, a lot of the a lot of the scenes just kind of play flatter than they would if you wanted to kind of like I don't know go a little stronger in any particular direction, which I think again is maybe this thing. You know, we're talking, which you're sort of a, like mentioned earlier, Matt, that like it's I, I think a lot about how like uh, it was like a Malcolm Gladwell podcast about like pop music being like the pop music has to use like the same simple words over and over again, whereas more genre specific things like country and hip hop get to be more specific with their lyrics. And it's like mm. if Farrelly wants to make a movie that's like for everyone, as you say, like it's like the whole family at Thanksgiving, like. That's just going to limit how how specific they can go in any direction. I don't think that mass appeal is like a bad thing, but I do think in this case we see like a little bit of a casualty of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally. The the there's a little bit of a loss of how do I want to say this? I think the reason people like war movies in general is it's 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 sort of a a, a space where men can show their love for each other mm. in a really like distinctive sort of style. And it, and it's like against all this backdrop of bloodshed and all this stuff. And where the movie for me really sings is in these moments where it's like sort of the last shot that he sees of his friends. And so it's like yeah. when his friend's looking back at him and Chickie's sort of the beer is rolling away. For all Rick Dugan knows, like that's the last he's ever gonna, that's the last image he's ever gonna see of Dugan. And one of the best shots of the movie is he's getting on this chopper <gasps> yes. and throws a beer down to Kevin McClune. Yeah, that's good. And it's that, for all he knows, is the last time he's ever going to see Kevin McClune. And I think, like, that's why we're coming to watch the movie. And so it's, I know it's supposed to make us, like, feel good and, like, ha- like we're going to have a fun time. But it's, I think it's just, like, okay to be, like, to be scary and to not have a pop song playing is like you're ducking bullets and to just be in a dugout and to be sort of like, like a little regretting your decision. Um, Mm -hmm. And to just sort of embrace like, Oh wow, this snapshot of, you know, whoever he's seen at this moment in time might be the only, like it might be the last time he ever sees him. It might be the last time this version of whomever he's seen still exists because the war will just permanently change both of them and sort of savor those moments. But because it's about because it's so plot driven and it's trying to like get through it all so quickly, like it doesn't really give it doesn't really have like those quiet moments that that land. And instead you get kind of like 
like to solve that, I think you get like the Russell Crowe type line of like, you know, that's what a, a war is. It's a giant crime scene. Mm-hmm. Did the book say how many beers he brought with him? Because this movie just, he seemed to have an infinite, he was handing out like dozens to each person he met. And I was like, sir, you have to stop. You're going to run out of them at some point. Caroline, I knew you were going to be so stressed out like I was. I was so stressed. In the first scene where he's handing them out, I was like, no, 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 you got to ration those. He was giving people like multiple rounds. I was like, how many could you have brought with you here? I think he brought, I want to say he brought 60 and he drank a lot on the boat ride over. And so he didn't have that many. And so like he was discreet <laughs> with his tricky. he was discreet with his PBRs and that when and how he would give those out. But then he was always resupplying yes. with um other beer. Like oh, Budweiser's and that stuff like that. That makes sense. But Okay, that would make a lot more sense. He was actually there for like eight weeks, is that right? The movie compresses it into a dramatic three day shore leave. Yeah, yeah. And there's a there's a chapter where he's like stuck there. They sort of arc out the CIA plot, and I think in a way that's like like fine for compression. But the other chapter that they leave out, which I think is also like quite a sweet sort of episode, is he's sort of stuck in Vietnam after the Tet Offensive, and he's trying to get like on a ship out or fly out of there, and he notices that there's like another like merchant marine ship sort of docked and they can't unload anything just because of Tet and now the longshoremen don't want to like the Vietnamese longshoremen don't want to work. So anyways, they're just stuck and there's all these like supplies as Saigon is like totally shut down. And so he's sneaking on to this boat, basically like stealing or being gifted like food, putting that in his duffel bag and like going and feeding the animals at the zoo that like are starving because the Viet Cong like killed the like they staged their Saigon like attack from the zoo and killed all the zookeepers so that they could like wow. build their forces up and like before the a big assault. And so he's like feeding the animals and then he's like um taking food to like the like small hotel he's staying at. And he's sort of taking food to the the bar where all the journalists are. So he kind of is this like this dude that's like in the black market food space. Mm-hmm. And um, I think, Caroline, to your like your so point of like some people are so dumb to that they can't get killed. Like mm-hmm. that kind of scene is like for that version of the movie. That's like, the, mm-hmm. oh, we're just going to follow a guy that is like sort of almost like enlightened in a sense, like it, through his idiocy. Like he yeah. will just go through and do sweet but stupid things his entire life. But again, it wanted to make this point about like war and I uh, and about sort of someone who just learns that like war is bad. And I think that the more nuanced version is that it's again, it could be more of a even more of a character portrait mm-hmm. about one of those guys. Well, well, speaking of kind of other, I don't know, maybe characters who I'm not. Well, I guess this is a question. Are they more specific portraits? What do we think about specifically Bill Murray as sort of one of the mentor figures who's like the very pro-war World War II is noble, so this war is noble mm-hmm. guy. And then Russell Crowe, who's like the jaded journalist who sees war for what it is. Did either of these performances stand out to you guys for good or for bad? I thought that those two, like Zac Efron, gave performances above the actual like level of dialogue that they were given, the material. I thought all three of them exceeded their material. And I definitely had a lot of moments with Zac in particular where I was like, 
Oh, that was a lame joke, but his delivery was like really funny. So mm-hmm. that actually sold it. And I'd say the same thing. Like, I don't think if we tried to talk out those, the bartender and uh, photographer characters, we could get much deeper than you got in your one sentence descriptions. The bartender is <laughs> is sort of a lovable grouchy pro-war guy he's like the battle of the bulge was tough but we gotta yeah, kill the yeah, nazis yeah. so everything worked out and uh it was just an interesting role to think of uh, bill murray for but uh yeah and then the, the, the photographer is like he's seen it all he's jaded he's lost friends he believes war is uh is bad and that telling the truth is important and that's kind of that's kind of it but i think mm-hmm. i think that all three of those actors we're talking about there like brought leveraged significant charisma you know Russell Crowe brought his sort of, like, heft and his, like, growly voice and uh, mm-hmm. and, and brought more to it. So I thought, that, you know, he had some good lines in there. It was making me laugh that we just talked about Russell Crowe when we did our Thor Love and Thunder episode. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I was like, what, what two performances to have given this year? Like, Campy <laughs> Zeus and Grizzled War yeah, Photographer. I was modes. fine with the Crowe performance. I was not sure this was Bill Murray's best work, personally. I was struggling with some of his... Maybe I'm just really struggling with the characters that are so naive about war being good. Like, maybe I just can't relate, but I was not sure I was vibing with Bill Murray in this movie. Well, also, like, we're as far from the movie Titanic as they are. were as far from World War II. So 75-year-old right. Bill Murray... 75-year-old Bill Murray is, like, would have been 50... And the Battle of the Bulge or whatever. You I was know struggling what I mean? with so the ages like, there too. So it's 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 not like it's not like he was there. Or is he supposed to you be know? playing like a forty or fifty year old in this movie? Yeah. So so that guy, the Colonel, I think was like thirty seven or forty in real like okay. in in the story. And so it was like and he was a World War Two vet. I don't know that he was. I don't. I he just was big on patriotism. Sure. Um, I think was, which is also like kind of. <laughs> And interesting, which is another, like, again, it's more complicated. Like, I see why they're simplifying it. Mm-hmm. Um, I will say, too, just very swiftly, like, like Bill Murray and Russell Crowe, just two body shapes. Again, I love, like, I'm, I'm into, <laughs> yeah. like, they're, like, 100%. they're men, you know, it, it doesn't need to be hunky in any way. Um, uh, certainly, they're anti-hunk in a certain sense yeah. that I'm, like, totally here for. Love it. And I love that I feel like Russell Crowe has really embraced and leaned into that recently. As I think Brendan Fraser, like I would consider these both like body positivity icons, like not jokingly, mm-hmm. genuinely. I love or Kelly Clarkson as well. I love when celebrities publicly have relaxed attitudes about body changes, like love, truly, truly love to see it. And I love to see Russell Crowe thriving with his beard and his belly, yeah. his Zeus physique. Yeah, he looks good in this. You know, he's got a good look. Yeah, he looks great. Love a grizzled beer. I I did find the sequ- the like Tet offensive sequence, which is just they think that they're just chilling in Saigon on a calm like New Year's Day, and then it or evening, and then it becomes this massive attack. Like that was quite a compelling. I kind of found this movie more compelling as it went along. I think, and that was maybe the most intense sequence. It's an incredibly dramatic historical event. I mean, like. How could it not mm-hmm. be? I mean, I guess it could not. You could bungle it entirely. But like, that's an extreme to just be in Saigon and be like, there was a ceasefire. And then, oh, my God, it's like improbably it's being overtaken by the gorillas. Like, that's a that's a crazy thing. Well, and that was a sequence where I thought, OK, surely 
they've made this up for the movie. Like they want him to be here on what happens to be a dramatic day. And I was shocked to look up that it literally happened this way that on the day he thought he was going to leave. Oh, wow. This massive attack happened. I was, I was, I thought that was actually one of the crazier facts of this whole story. And I think he saw the, like he actually saw that tank blow a hole in the like embassy wall. Interesting. And that, that like the word on the street was that the VC had like, obviously like they had snuck in and taken over and they they hadn't like busted through barricades and stuff it was the the what happened was that they had basically received this intelligence that the that there was going to be something like there was going to be some kind of offensive and the like u.s powers that be didn't station more than four marines at the embassy which was like obviously not enough to guard it and yeah. so it was like a, it was just a total mess and they took it over for like 17 hours or whatever they took it over for. But that was one of the, his big, like his big turning points. Um, I also th- think that one of the things that like makes that entire sequence work so well is like how it gets to like Zac Efron has that monologue at the, like as they're hiding out where he's like, God always punishes me. Like, I, you yeah. know, the first and it's funny and it's poignant. It's like, you know, the first time I had sex, I got crabs. She blamed yeah. me. You know, it's like that's like a good line. It's well delivered. And like I wanted that. I think that there was it, I don't I guess I, did, I was in the camp. I didn't care if the movie was like two hours from instead of 145 or whatever. Mm-hmm. But like I wanted the other boys to get like that kind of something like that sort mm-hmm. of moment like that. Yeah. And I think you're right that the moments that are more specific feel more emotionally moving. Like I'm thinking specifically of this whole runner that the mom of Tommy, who's the the youngest kid that's gone MIA and that was the closest to Chicky and that Chicky kind of the kid had, had wanted he was only 17 and he wanted to sort of get a waiver and go to Vietnam mm. early. And at some point kind of got cold feet. And then Chiki was like, no, you're doing the right thing. You should absolutely do it. So carries this guilt around. And there's this runner where the mom sort of gives Chiki a rosary to bring to her son. Like, he's just missing. We'll find him. And then you can give him this. And then it turns out Tommy has died. And so then Chiki has to bring the rosary back to the mom after. And I thought that scene was quite moving and also, like, really impressed me from a Zach performance level where he's sort of – that's where he finally, like, tells the mom that – that it was that he really blames himself for this. And and he's like, Tommy was really scared and I should have let him be scared, which I found to be quite a moving line. Like his instinct was like, I didn't want him to be scared. So I told him he was doing the right thing. But actually, people should be scared of war because it's quite horrible. Mm-hmm. So and I think it was, it was something about the specificity of like that rosary and how that would tie in culturally with their kind of, you know, Catholic working class neighborhood. Like I think that made that sequence feel more elevated than a lot of the other more generic interactions we keep talking mm. about and little zach showing off his dramatic chops never seen him break down and cry like that yeah have you guys seen this movie um it's a tom cruise movie it's called cocktail it's from like the yeah. late 80s he's like a bartender at a flair bartender at it's it's like sort of the origin story of the founder of tgi fridays wow. which used to be sort of a a like like a singles bar huh. you know I probably think about cocktail more than like anyone else. Um, <laughs> but like it's this nothing movie where Tom Cruise is just just like willing it into being a better film mm-hmm. just through sheer mm-hmm. charisma and like giving every scene it all it's all. And it doesn't totally like 
add up like why is he in jamaica why is he falling in love like like but it doesn't matter because he's just like purely like a charismatic presence and i do think that zach is doing a little he's like he is cocktailing a little bit here mm. and just throughout the entire <laughs> well, movie i love this as, a as well that like that like there are these scenes especially in vietnam where it's it feels like more flatter because it doesn't want to like fully commit to being too horrifying mm -hmm. that like the kids can't watch it that um but it doesn't matter really because like we're watching a really good Zac Efron performance that we wouldn't otherwise like get. And it's like nice to see mm -hmm. him be able to like kind of flex in that way. Even just the little moment where they're with, he's with the first group of guys and they're kind of drinking and he's like doing these little dance moves, you know, like a classic Zach's got to put some dancing in there. And it's so charming and personal and specific. It's crazy how many times you guys have mentioned things like I didn't note that many moments, like specifically in my notes, but like tossing the beer out of the helicopter, I wrote, Zach's little helmet dance is charming. It's more interesting than this movie is, is what I wrote at that scene. Hmm. So you heard it here first, folks, cocktailing. That is what we call it when an actor <laughs> mm -hmm. is really kind of like working their tail off and uh, and they're working their cocktail off. I was like, why did that phrase come into my head? Oh, right. <laughs> duh. Um, and yeah, to like to elevate the movie. Which is one of my favorite things. I'm obsessed with great performances buried in mediocre movies. I love those. Mm -hmm. mm. Matt, I think the sign from Cocktail, the like neon sign, is featured in Thor Love and Thunder because Taika Waititi is also a fan of that movie and wanted an homage to it. So you are not alone in your love of Cocktail. It is having a cultural <laughs> resurgence at but this it's very like, moment. It's such, a, it's such a mediocre, it's such a mediocre movie, like on so many like levels, but it's just like, it's somehow it's like- It's just not the kind of movie. It's there. like, let's make, a, let's make a dramedy about two guys who love flair bartending. Like that's just not a movie you could pitch today. There's no hook. This is like such a weird greatest beer run ever is like ultimately such a it's such a like meh movie in a certain respect because it's like it's like hard it's a little hard to find the footing on it a little bit you know what I mean like it's like what it's like yeah it's like I I feel how you feel a little bit that it's like is this the right it's like what is this the right Zac Efron thing it's like not it's like a C or something you know what I mean it's like a yeah. I would give it a C plus. I don't know. C is B. I, I, I'm, I'm never, I don't write the like ratings in that regard as well, but this would probably, when I, I give it two when, and I, a half when I put my letterbox, I'll probably make it a three star, which is just like, this was a movie. Sure. Yeah. I think two and a half to three kind of feels. <laughs> this movie exists. <laughs> I'll spend an hour of my life being like, should this be a B? Should this be a B minus? Should this be a B? <laughs> like when I'm doing a review, that takes longer than writing the review. The, the yeah. amount of time I stress yeah. over. Should bro my bros review be a B or a B plus? Well, it's a high B, but it's a low B plus. So which I side don't do want to encourage you to like obsess over those, but I definitely do think it's probably you see so often you'll see a review you're like this person loves this. Why do they give it a C minus? Everything yep. they said about it was yep. good. <laughs> what confusing? What it's a confusing uh, yeah. <laughs> element of the yeah. It's like a it's the cocktail of it all. You know, it's yeah. it's a little bit of it's that's <laughs> sort of which again is firmly like a C movie that is kind of like. <laughs> like white knuckled into a C plus star. or B minus <laughs> territory. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I just think about it when I'm like, um, when I'm doing anything that, that like, it's like, man, does this project sh suck? And it's like, it doesn't need to. 
if I have this attitude that it, it can be like more than it is. And I'm so guilty of you that. You cocktail it. And I even like that. when guilty I first. That. You should be praised for that. When I first moved to LA, though, and I'm like working on dry bar commercials, it's like <laughs> that's not the time or place to like try and like cocktail. You know what I mean? <laughs> but yet, here depends there on I was. <laughs> how much you feel like those are like chips you have to hold. You know, can you can oh, you cocktail man. everything, or do you does it do you need to save it till cocktail comes along to withhold your cocktail? <laughs> your amount of liquid well, I don't something. know I struggled I was trying There's to think something of a metaphor there. there I think it'll be interesting to see from here sort of where is that goes maybe even just genre wise because I think most of the movies we've covered so far have been his like more heightened musicals rom-coms romantic dramas and then all of this sort of comedy studio comedy vein but they're there really haven't been that many just like Zach Efron pure kind of dramatic leading man movies in his career. Like we haven't covered any, but there just haven't been that many in general. Like we talked a little bit about Extremely Wicked and him playing Ted Bundy. Um, he did. <laughs> I haven't seen this as either, but he did a movie in 2015 called We Are Your Friends, which is like a DJ drama. Like oh a man, drama that, about the trailer of that DJ. movie. The trailer of that movie is just like, when a guy is given one of two decisions to be like a worse human being, like in the movie doesn't know this, but it's like, do I want to like be a guy or like make a lot of money? And it's like, I'm just going to make a lot mm-hmm. of money. And it's like, do I want to like mm-hmm. have normal friends or super hot friends? It's like, I want to have super hot friends. That's like what that trailer is. And it's like, but it's treated as like, this is a good thing. Like the, he's on an <laughs> earnest journey. But it's like an insane, yes. it's an insane like. On a choose your own adventure journey to become the worst person. I feel like when that, I don't know how many people saw that movie, but I think when that trailer came out, everyone was like, why is this movie about some people trying to be a DJ presented as if it is the next great American coming of age story? Right, right. It's so easy to make fun of the trailer, but I haven't, I haven't seen it. But that trailer is such a perfect piece of art. I always go in with the intention of watching so many more movies in these series than I end up doing. But one I did watch that I just feel like we can't have done a whole Zach Efron series and not shout out was maybe like one of his earlier attempts at just pure drama, which was The Paperboy. Mm-hmm. Lee Daniels, The Paperboy from 2012. I think most famous for being a movie where the headline, Nicole Kidman pees on Zach Efron. That's like what people know that about was, that yeah, movie. That's what I could have told you. Which does happen. I will say the situation in which she pees on him is that he has been like stung by a hundred jellyfish and is like in pain. And she, it is, it is a less, I don't know, salacious scenario mm. than I was picturing it being. Like it's a more medicinal Yeah. <laughs> I was situation. Emily. I was snorkeling last week, and Emily's like, "If you if you get if you touch a black sea urchin, I will have to pee on you." So that is a thing. Yeah. Well, <laughs> Nicole Nicole was willing to do it. It's an interesting. Oh wait, I have to read this quote. This was up there with the Kodiak cakes line. Apparently, so Lee Daniels, who directed it, was considering cutting the pee scene, and the Kid, Kidman said to him, "Quote Lee, you made me pee on Zac Efron. If you don't put it in the movie, you need to man up." <laughs> I love Nicole Kidman. I love all of her <laughs> Me like interview too. quotes and things. She's a live Absolutely wire. Absolutely <laughs> an icon. Yeah. She's giving a great performance. It's like a weird, based on a true story, mm. but sort of gauzy, southern, gothic 
uh, like tawdry. Yeah, it looks like movie. a very sweaty southern drama. Yes, it was an interesting context in which to see Zach. I actually think it's he was playing kind of like a James Dean hmm. type of like troubled young young youth with like maybe you feel like they have the potential to go bad but also they have this innate goodness to them too so they could go good it was it was like an interesting glimpse of an alternate universe where he exited high school musical and started doing sort of dramatic work as opposed to the mm-hmm. neighbors work so i you know i mean i don't really think zach efron's ever bad like i can't really think of movies where i'm like the fundamental flaw of that movie was that zach efron was a bad actor sometimes he doesn't do interesting movies but i don't think that's usually He's not usually the no. problem. Which is funny because I think people do still generally tend to think of him as a lightweight, you know, in, in pop. I mean, I just like my mom who listens to the podcast sometimes is like, oh, him. Uh, Yeah, I don't really think of him. And, you know, which I'm like, sure. that's totally fair. And it might it might have to do with genre. Like mom is not particularly interested in like tween musicals or bro comedies. And those have been his like two areas of, of expertise. Yeah. But yeah, he has, I think this idea of, or he has this like maybe reputation among a lot of people being a lightweight actor, but I don't think he is ever like panned for being a bad job. In fact, I think much more frequently, he's kind of like the highlight of the movie. He's cocktailing mm-hmm. it more often. Yeah. <laughs> Are there any other, I feel like we any other Zach performances we need to shout out that we haven't covered? Anyone have a secret? A secret Zach? Well, I don't. I don't want to like. I don't necessarily feel the need to shout out like me and Orson Welles, but I do want to see in sort of like the the eco Zach era or like really the mm-hmm. dad Zach era, um, like the dad movie. I do want to see him like team up with Richard Linklater again. I think that mm-hmm. he would probably probably unlock a performance in him. And just takes weirder risks with movies that that I would like mm-hmm. to see sort of what they do together. Maybe we need Zach playing if we're trying to combine his sort of his hobby of protecting the environment and his new sort of like dad movie era. Maybe we need like an old fashioned courtroom drama where he's like the <gasps> lawyer that's stopping yes, the yeah, oil totally. company from, you know, killing the pelicans. I or love a courtroom mm-hmm. drama. I would love to see him we- up there doing that. Which and Ted Bundy, a lot of that is Ted Bundy just defending himself in the court, like he became his own lawyer. So Zach has had experience sort of showboating in a courtroom setting before. How old are Leopold and Loeb when they killed that kid? Oh wow! Ned, <laughs> of all the questions, I, I was they were I young. Could I, ever have imagined you to ask? <laughs> I would put money on like nineteen. Oh shit! Ah, uh, you're probably right. Um, but I, I don't know. I don't know. Oh, yeah. They were students yes. at the University of Chicago. Anyway, I just, when I thought courtroom drama, I was like, why do I say I love courtroom dramas? And I was like, because I love Never the Sinner by John Logan. And then I was like, oh, mm. would he be fun? He's just so beautiful. Would he be fun in like a, but I guess he's kind of done like charismatic, handsome serial killer. And he's now officially too old. They are, they're college students. So Never mind. I think what we need is for him to have the career that like Matt Damon had in the 90s. Mm-hmm. You know, I feel like Matt Damon did some like legal John Grisham. Sure. Probably. Kind of things. Yeah. Bring back, bring back the adult. Yeah, so drama. are we going to get a like a like a like a born identity with Zach? Has he done a full on action film? No, I guess it's mostly been comedy. Yeah. Action like a Baywatch. Yeah. Yeah, maybe that could be. I mean, he certainly loves the like I'm traveling the world and doing crazy physical things. 
I don't know. It'll be interesting to watch. He, he's only 35. I mean, he's about to turn 35 later this month. Happy birthday, mm-hmm. Zach. So he's still, you know, I mean, some people's careers like are just getting started at this yeah. point. He just happens to be a 35-year-old who's had, you know, like multiple decades of career yeah. already. And he, so, yeah, he, it'll be he, interesting. he brings with him that history of like, that I think Tarantino is really good at like writing toward that he'll always be able to do a dance like the way Travolta dances in Pulp Fiction Mm -hmm. and you're just like oh yeah I miss this guy I like this was so cool like this guy has this talent and I would like to see him sort of being playing like these more like I'd like to see him do a more Pattinson-esque role like a grittier role or something that just has a dance number tangentially and it's like Mm -hmm. fun not like a musical number but just like he's dancing with someone and it's like, oh, wow, mm-hmm. yeah, it's nice to see him sort of show off in this way. Peter Fairley cited John Travolta in Saturday Night Fever as his, like, comparison point for Zac Efron's performance in The Greatest Beer Run Ever, which I don't know if that totally connects in my mind, but is getting to the, to the I don't know, the meta quality, the showman quality, the dance quality that maybe somebody like a Tarantino can can like years later bring out of him Pulp Fiction style, you know? That would be sweet. Do y'all know that he's doing a wrestling movie? Uh, No, but that sounds both right up your alley and honestly right up his alley as well. Completely. So this was when, when two weeks ago when we recorded Greatest Showman and you were like, have you heard this news? And I was like, I think I have if someone oh, has sent yeah. it to me. I forgot about that. It's because that morning, Jake had sent me, my friend Jake had sent me the news, which I was flattered to be thought of. That Zac Efron is going to be in a movie uh, about the Von Erich family called, I think, The Iron Claw. Um, with the oh, these are real these are real wrestlers. wrestlers. Um, these are real, real sad wrestlers because it's just a it's a tragic family. It's a uh, it's the guy Fritz Von Erich was a I mean he was a Texan that was not his real name, and he took this Nazi gimmick um, and was very successful with it. And then he had six sons. And I don't know, do you want some spoilers for the plot of the Iron Claw? I'll take them. All five of his six sons predeceased Fritz von Erich, and then he also died in the 90s. Wow. So basically, like, tragedy oh and suicide, like, plagued the family. Um, but they were, like, yeah, they were huge. And they were, they were this thing where they were all, the sons all took the dad's gimmick. That is to say, they also called themselves von Erichs and like were Germans, and they would tour the different territories and be villains. Except when they were in their home promotion in in um, Texas, they were like heroes. And uh, it's got Zac Efron. It's got the bear guy, the guy from the bear, hot oh, hot rat I guy did see from that the bear. News. Yeah, and maybe yeah. some other people. <laughs> um, cousin. Yeah. cousin, what is that? Is that a thing from the bear? I haven't watched it yeah. yet. So. Yeah. yeah, they all yeah. call each other cousin. Behind. Um, anyway, so I, you know, I'm working in pro wrestling now as a referee, and uh, I'm. Well, yeah, that's how that's how I know you. That's how I know Ned is from college, <laughs> seeing this this like performance where it was like all set on a wrestling ring, and he was the referee, which is both my like favorite archetype in all of wrestling is just like <laughs> what the referee has to do this guy in charge of the rules who somehow misses all the rules <laughs> and that kind of acting <laughs> yeah. that refs have to do of just sort of like like checking on someone while they're missing someone else like put on brass knuckles <laughs> is like i love that yeah. i just love the obliviousness of that and so i was i knew you through that character before i actually like even knew you as a person yeah and i i can't i still can't like 
you know, the myth of you as that ref is still like like near and dear to me. I'm really <laughs> I'm really touched to hear that it stuck with you because that was one of my favorite things I did in college. Um, I loved it was WrestlePocalypse was what it was called, and it was it was. I did it four years in a row, and it was like the highlight, one of the one of the major highlights of my college experience. But yeah, I'm now working, I'm training at a freelance wrestling academy in Chicago, and I'm working as a real as a referee in the actual world of wrestling. So this this year has been like my crash course oh my into God. that world, and uh, boy, what a world! If I don't, yeah, if I don't crank out at least one good screenplay out of this, I'm. I'm I'm like a fool because it's so it's such an interesting uh such an interesting world. But yeah, I've also been learning a little bit about the history and I learned about the Von Erichs and uh so yeah, when I learned that that's going to be one of Zac Efron's upcoming projects like I know where I'll be opening night. <laughs> I was going to say is it too late to get you cast in the movie as Oh referee? gosh, if I had a little bit more pull, maybe if we had uh you know 40,000 listeners uh on every episode, you know, then, <laughs> then I could maybe Start a fan yeah, campaign yeah, yeah. to get cast. We'll see. Maybe maybe if they do a sequel, but they won't because they all died. But um, anyway. Yeah. Maybe he'll just go on to play a series of pro wrestlers. Hey, there's a lot of characters there. There's a lot of stories they could do. Yeah. Yeah, I could see Zach flourishing yeah. in that world. I mean, it kind of sounds like what we're basically saying is when that movie comes out, we will be doing a special Ooh. podcast episode on it for multiple reasons. I didn't realize that's what we're saying, but that's what we're saying. Yeah, we've got to. Yeah, absolutely. We'll be oh, checking yeah. back in. On Zach there. Ned, did you have a favorite, either Zach film or Zach performance that we covered mm, on this series? Mm. You had to pick one of the five. Well, I, I guess think seven. <laughs> did all the high school musicals. <laughs> I think, like, for whatever reason, I'm getting stuck on, like, Neighbors 2. I think that his just, like, his comic yeah. timing in that is just, like, so swell. I mean, I really like where he is in high school musicals in those I think, like, seeing him, like, fresh out the gate with all that charisma is really great. But, like, I think he's doing a great job. I think in all his in all of his uh, performances, he's, like, he's basically doing as, as, as good a job as I think you could possibly do with the material he's given. Mm-hmm. I definitely had the sort of, like, strongest reaction to Greatest Showman as a movie. I am so yeah. happy. It makes me so happy how much you came, you fell in love with that. Movie. Yeah, is not to say that I'm convinced. The, like the the further I get from it, the more my opinions deepen. That like there's literally like nothing to the movie in terms of substance, but my like my like love for it deepens. So yeah. Mm-hmm. Matt, are you a fan of The Greatest Showman? Yeah, I am. I am a fan, and I. What's your favorite song? Oh man. <laughs> Um, you can just describe what's happening if you don't remember the very generic titles. Uh, yeah. Yeah. No, I. I don't I don't remember. I do really like let's see, I really like the broing out like Hugh Jackman, Zach Efron number yes. at the bar. It's probably like that's ones. probably the one that is like what the song I'm most likely to have stuck in my head mm-hmm. is mm-hmm. is that one. Um they also do like forty shots in that scene. Like it's like a <laughs> It's like when you use that a shot. An incredible text that was like calculating how many shots they took and how much alcohol that would have been to consume. Yes, it is. To, it is specific. Assuming that they are doing standard one and a half ounce pours on all those shots, they consume ten mm-hmm. and a half ounces of alcohol over the course of the song, <laughs> which is you know basically like drinking five cocktails in four minutes. So they would they would just barf cocktail. Right. I do have to say though, as the resident 
Greatest Showman super fan, if you watch the first half of the song, when Hugh Jackman's the one pouring the shots, he pours Zac Efron full shots and he pours himself half shots. So that, that is a nice detail. Barnum is staying clear headed in yeah. order to get this guy on his side. Uh, yeah, from the from the from the I guess there is a kind of a lot of alcohol through maybe not in high school musicals or hairsprays, but the the frat Efron integrated showman integrated beer run has a weird alcohol through line. It's really interesting considering how many of those things are done after he's like literally like gone sober, mm-hmm. like, like, sober. like yeah, sober in recovery. Like he continues to be sort of associated with these like heavy drinking projects. I guess he's just got his mm-hmm. head really right about it all. Yeah. I mean, you know what he's got his head about? <laughs> A little less drinking, a little that's more right. thinking. That's right. That's, that's exactly. <laughs> For the record, my favorite, I mean, I got to say my favorite Zach movie is OG High School mm-hmm. Musical, just because I love it so much. I think my favorite Zach performances are High School Musical 3 and Neighbors 2. He has a he has a steep hill to climb to top those two performances in my mind, but I believe that he yeah. can do it because he is a talented and committed young man. And, and I think... In Greatest Beer Run Ever, it's pretty clear that, like, this is the one where it is, I'd say he is most going above and beyond his material and showing, like, this is a guy. And, you know, he's been doing that since High School Musical 1, where, like, he was giving a performance that I thought was, like, clearly a cut above everybody else in that ensemble. And, yeah, I think he'll probably continue to do that. The little ending of the Men's Health article, which is one of those, I went out to lunch with Zac Efron, I'm writing a profile Mm -hmm. about him pieces, is that... Is that Efron leaves, has a kind of goes around the corner, gets his car from the valet, then the valet comes back and is speaking to the reporter. And so the valet is kind of saying, like, oh, I just told him, oh, he's so funny. And then the valet says, Oh, that's not it. He could be like the Twilight guy, Robert Pattinson. And that the valet is telling the reporter, You need to tell that Zach Efron. He could kill it in Oscar movies. Tell him he could do it. <laughs> and the article ends with that the valet has perceived Efron exactly as he seems to want to be perceived. Maybe everyone else will too. <laughs> I think we do. The three of us do. <laughs> Zach, we're ready to perceive you. Okay, so that's a wrap on Zach. I can't believe it's finally over. Um, what a joy it was to spend these five films with him. So as we head into our sort of fall winter season, we're actually mixing up the format of our podcast a little bit. And we're going to kind of go into some some seasonal mm-hmm. specials, some Halloween and sort of Thanksgiving, Christmassy time specials. So Ned, do you want to tell them what we're, which old friends we're revisiting next? Well, yeah, I think so. So to like, just to confirm, so we're gonna not we're not gonna cover another actor. We're not gonna do another five actor series until I think twenty twenty three. And uh, when we do, we've got some fun plans. I've I've got some things I'm really looking forward to then. But um, I think for the first special, we're gonna visit our dear old friend Jamie Lee Curtis and her dear old nemesis Michael Myers, <laughs> aka the Shape, um, in uh, in the dubiously titled Halloween Ends. Um, which we are going to actually go see in a movie theater. Never seen a Michael Myers film or maybe even any like major slasher film in a movie theater before. I'm a little scared, but a little excited. <laughs> Ned and I will be spooked together. Yeah, we're going to get together. together. And, uh, and what do you, do you want to give more hints for down the way or do you want to remain cryptic about that? I think let's keep it a mystery. We got to keep the people coming back for more. We've got something that I think we consider to be more of a Christmas, Thanksgiving and Christmas holiday movies, but maybe not in the way that you would expect. Yes, I think that's a great hint. An unconventional holiday holiday season favorite. Yes. 
But before we get into any of that, we have to say, Matt, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you for reading an entire book to give us amazing background. I had to know. I had to know. (laughs) I I was like, did that guy, CIA guy, throw someone out of the helicopter? No, No. he didn't see that. But I had to know. I had to know. Well, now you knew, and now you could tell us and our listeners. We so appreciate it. Um, where can our listeners find you online if you'd like to be found? And is there anything that you'd like to plug? Um, I uh, can be found on Instagram at Matt. Or no, just Matt Paycall at Matt Paycall. Um, I'm not too. I'm not like the most active on it. But the main thing is like we have a new season of documentary now coming out which I think is starts October 19th. And then my episode is the season finale, November 16th. Um, and that's on AMC that's Plus AMC. and IFC. Yeah. What can you tell us about your episode? I mean, I'm a, I love documentary now. Um, it is uh, an Agnes Varda. It's like a love letter to Agnes Varda, who is this French New Wave filmmaker who um, in her later years transitioned to these like incredibly personal um like handmade documentaries. So it's just like her and like a mini DV camera going around, you know, France. And um, it's basically about this, like this woman who has, well, I won't tell too much, but yeah, like, yeah. but like, yeah, it's, it's a, you'll see. Anyways, if you like documentary now and you like Agnes Varda, it'll, it'll, you'll like it. Yeah. I um, think I'm going to be pretty solidly in the bag for that one. And I don't think we maybe explicitly said this before, but the reason you were at TIFF was because your episode was one of the ones that premiered there and it seemed to be very well received. So people should definitely check that out when it airs. Yeah, it sort of it sort of premiered a few days. Um, it's like got sort of a little bit of a love letter vibe toward like Jean-Luc Godard as well. Mm. And so it premiered and it was like just three days before he passed away. Yeah. And so it was like that that timing kind of, it was nice to like, not nice necessarily, but I think for Agnes Varda fans, if you've seen Faces Places, he like is supposed to meet Agnes at a certain point and he doesn't show. And it's like this really heartbreaking thing. And so we kind of like do a fan fiction version of that, I think. In a I was way. wondering if that moment would be documentary now because that, that is such a vivid like going and just having a little note from him being like, nah, I left. It's crazy. Yeah, he's so mean. Yeah. He was so so anyways, we but we're we're obviously huge like French film nerds and and love that kind of stuff. So it it was it was a really like fun episode to do. And Agnes Varder obviously made, was making movies into like her late 80s and like I think maybe it was 90 when she made her last film. And um we cast an 89-year-old, the wonderful Lillian Robert, who's in Call My Agent, if you've seen it. She's <gasps> sort of uh, Arlette, I think. Oh man! Oh, that's um, so cool. And she's uh, she's just like a tour de force. She was just the coolest woman in real life, and brought such a great vibe to the character. And like, she was like cool in a way that you can only be cool if you hung out in like French jazz clubs in the '60s, like <laughs> that, like kind of level of cool. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it was. I mean, it's also just a really fun season in general. So, like, check it out if you're a Documentary Now fan. I think cool. Yeah, you'll enjoy that's this super season. exciting. So, AMC, AMC Plus and IFC is where it's airing now, or will 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 be airing once it premieres. Mm-hmm. And yeah, watch all the way through. Do you think that Zac Efron snuck into the back of your premiere and watched it while he was <laughs> in town? I, I don't know. Like that is 
Yeah, of course. Of course he did that. Of course. You know, Do you think he's not? somewhere recording a podcast about <laughs> Matt Pickle's career? <laughs> he's like on his like travel show. I'm sure he's like mm-hmm. he's like talking to documentary uh, about documentary now and like he's having Panama. this exact conversation yeah. with his three famous friends, but they're so famous already they don't <laughs> yeah. record it. Well, they record it, but they just show <laughs> each other and their family. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's super exciting. I know I will definitely be watching, and all of our listeners should watch as well. And that's a wrap on Zach. I'm trying to very quickly think of some sort of... Oh, uh, what team? Wildcats. <laughs> Thank you. Wow. For all I could think of was <laughs> our house, but that's not it. We That works too. You know, some sort of cheer. We could have planned it better, but this is... We're like the chicky. We're, you know, we're just rolling with the that's punches right. No here. plan. So, uh, yeah, that's it for Zach. And Roll Calling is produced and recorded by us, Caroline Sita and Ned Baker. Our theme music was created by Patrick Buddy, and our logo was designed by Nick Wanserski. You can follow us on Twitter or on Instagram. We are at Roll Calling, or you can email us, rollcalling at gmail.com. Hey, if you want to email us what you what you think are uh, a guess for our strange holiday specials that we ever so vaguely teased are feel free to. I like when we inadvertently make a guessing game for our listeners. Uh, So that's rollcalling at gmail.com, roll spelled R-O-L-E. We will be back in our next episode with Halloween ends. Until then. Like my grandpa used to say, always ring the doorbell with your elbow.